Welcome to the Theotech Podcast, a show where we apply the theology of technology to all of life and help each other demystify tech to use it for God's purposes. I'm your host, Chris Lim, with a special episode on AI and the church. For the purposes of our discussion, AI, or artificial intelligence, is an attempt to use computers for tasks that typically require human intelligence. For example, finding faces in a picture, translating between languages, diagnosing a disease, driving a car, targeting ads, or writing a news article are all tasks that can make use of artificial intelligence. The benefits are enormous, since you can automate some human labor or scale up the effort of a single person to do the work of thousands. There's also the perennial quest to predict the future, whether it be the weather, stock market, or relational health. Another aspect of AI is machine learning, where computers learn from examples instead of having to be programmed by code. Instead of trying to codify the rules of language to teach a computer how to translate between Indonesian and English, what if you could just give it an English and Indonesian Bible so it could learn to translate by itself? The more examples you give, the better it gets at being able to translate until it reaches the point where you can rely on it as much as a human interpreter. That's where questions of data collection and privacy arise. AI requires so much data to be useful, and even then the measure of its usefulness can be tainted by biases and problems in the data itself. How can AI be trained and used in an ethical way? That's one of the questions we explore in this episode with David Brenner and Gretchen Huizinga, two founding members of an organization Theotech is part of called AI and Faith. AI and Faith is a channel for faith-based perspectives to help shape the development of AI in ways that are deeply ethical and life-affirming. Gretchen, David, and I have a three-part discussion. We'll explore AI's relevance to the church, what a faith perspective can bring to AI ethics and development, and the work that AI and faith as an organization is doing in this space. Gretchen Huizinga is going to start us out by breaking down the complex issues of AI and digital privacy with her own special, memorable analogy. A lot of the science that I've talked about with researchers is so complex that it's you've got to really distill it down to the nuggets of how it impacts people and what they should be aware of. The metaphor that I've used quite a bit, if I can see your underwear, it's to my advantage not to let you know I can see your underwear if I want to keep looking at your underwear. Because it's the, it's the part where it's not very nice what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm spying on you. And people are vaguely aware that they're agreeing but they don't see it happening. They don't catch the person mm. doing what they're doing. And so as long as I don't know really what's going on, I'm fine because I want to use this app. Mm. And then once you find things out is when you get cynical and nervous, right? And you say, okay, I'm going off, but you go off only for a short time, right? Mm. I'm quitting Facebook. Well, maybe you'll come back because you miss your friends. Mm. That interaction and so on. So the big thing that people talk about, I think, all along is trade-offs. What of my privacy and my data and my life am I willing to give somebody in exchange for free use of this very convenient tool for me? The fact that if I want to find out if a restaurant's nearby, I'm giving a lot of my personal information to somebody who may or may not have my best interest in mind. Maybe I'm giving it to somebody who has my best interest in mind, but somebody else can hack into it. And yeah, those are the kinds of things I think um, as more and more apps come online, as more and more of them are informed by AI. Yeah. 
these are the kinds of issues that we need to be communicating with. I really like I really like what you described because you finally, for me at least in this conversation, you've grounded this conversation about ethics to a very specific thing that I think anybody could understand. Because like it's like I want to use Facebook to connect my friends, but I don't want them to know everything about me. And now I have to make a choice. And it seems like it's you know for the average consumer, you don't really have a choice. You either say yes or no. I either take it or I leave it. Um, and then, but then as I as I open it up a little bit more, the like if we bring entrepreneurs into this conversation, they're the ones who are creating the businesses, right? Yeah. They're creating the incentives. They're the ones who are offering the trade. They could have, there's an ethical thing for them to say, what are the kind of just trade-offs that I want to offer to my customers? They have investors that they're accountable to. So they have to think about what are the just trade-offs in my investors and what they want. And then you can bring in polity and policy too, which is the government regulation side also. Yeah, and like it kind of it, it kind of springboards, but it springboards off of a very grounded interaction, which is, I want to get the benefit of connecting my friends and knowing what's up, but I'm having to make this choice between that and giving up all my privacy or or not. Right. You can build around that a case for can we can we reimagine new trade offs that we can offer to people that are going to be ethical but sustainable, like all those kinds of questions. Yeah. Keep going. Well, and as you alluded to before, the uh, the idea of controls are being built into a lot of systems now, a lot of apps, giving people more control over their privacy, who they share data with, et cetera. Um, but they're so complicated, like you say, and, and they're complicated on purpose. They don't want to make it easy for you to go in and change the settings so that they don't have as much of your data as possible. And I, I use the term they as if it's this malevolent they, but it's not true. It's simply that if my business model is based on data so that I can allow you to use my apps for free. And that is, we demand free apps, right? If anyone wants to put a paywall, we say, screw it, I'm not using it. Yeah. Um, but I think, so, so there's that building in the control panel so that I can have agency in how I want to share. And, but back to the other side of it, I think it's super important to understand what, is so valuable about my data. And I think that's the thing I would wanna communicate, especially to communities of faith, is if this is super valuable, what is it that's valuable about it? Because it doesn't feel valuable. I don't feel like I'm spending anything mm -hmm. when I give my data. It feels just normal, right? Mm -hmm. And I really don't understand how much, how can these companies be billion dollar companies if everyone gets to use them for free. Hmm. And so that's one thing I would say, be aware of. Uh, and that's not necessarily something that I think a lot of people think about. Can you explain it right now for the for our listeners? Like, and maybe this is useful because even if you're a technologist, if it's really clear, we can share it with the people who aren't. And it's like, oh, this is the value chain. This is why it's valuable. Well, I think I'm probably the least able to explain it in a you know, complete way, except to say what I've just said. These are billion dollar companies with billionaires at the helm. God bless them. You know, it's, that's how the, the business model evolved and, and, mm -hmm. and unfolded. But what we started talking about earlier is where, when a new technology is developed, where's the first application that's going to pay off really big? Yeah. And, and it's different for all of them, but in, 
in the online world, the biggest value had come through advertisers and companies that wanted to target more specifically people who might buy their stuff. Yes. And so the biggest industry is advertising. Yes. And if you watched the social network, you see the argument from the beginning, we're not going to have ads. Yes, we are. We have to have ads. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon that switched over to all ads. And, and then the ads got scary. I go online to buy a sink for my kitchen from Home Depot mm -hmm. and I shop around and then five seconds later, there's a sink ad in my Instagram feed. Mm -hmm. And so you go, okay, that's freaky, but everyone laughs about it, but that's revealing, right? This is how AI and machine learning works is when you leave a footprint or a fingerprint online, that data becomes valuable to somebody wherever you, if, whether it was a Google search engine or whether it was a shopping, you know, an online store or whatever. So all of that data becomes valuable to somebody who wants your eyeballs, your mind share, your dollars. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think this is a mystery, but so then we have to ask the next question. Um, how else could that data be used and for whose purposes? And I don't know that anybody extrapolates they, they might get a little nervous that, hey, I was just online or I just said something around my phone. I've had people say, you know, yeah. I seem to have said something and then I got an ad for it. Is that on purpose or is that an accident? So there's technologies for that. And the apps require that require microphone permission could be listening in the background right. and it may not be speech recognition. It actually may be that um, there's ultrasound fingerprints basically that are playing around and can know like if you're watching tv the ad that you saw or it could be speech recognition too that it heard a conversation you said and now it's going to surface yeah. you ads related to that it could just be that the predictive analytics is so omniscient quote unquote that based on everything else it knew that that's something that you would care about so we've explored some of the ethical issues with data collection but what about the problems that happen after it's been gathered we want to blame AI for so many things, not realizing that guys, it's not really AI or even machine learning's fault. Like we were doing this before as human beings, human beings as the creators, we're the ones who are already kind of corrupt. Right. And the, this tool is kind of extending and amplifying that corruption in the data sets that we have and stuff. But. And what's, what's interesting too, though, is that when we talk about corrupt data sets, often they're just incomplete mm -hmm. or um, easy or ignorant. And so people that are, this is what we're experiencing right now. If you don't live an experience, it doesn't appear to you or seem to you that it's a problem until you see how it has a terrible impact. Mm. And so I think that's where this sort of AI issues regarding bias and fairness have been shocking to people who truly didn't set out to have algorithms that were unfair or biased and it's like, mm -hmm. okay, let's dig in a little. So I think that's a big issue that a lot of people are really wrapping their brains around and their talents around right now. Which is really good to hear. Yeah. And it kind of ties in, I think though, to maybe the other side of the, the coin, which is the mystification of technology where policymakers, um, you know, consumers and others, they kind of just want to, there's a narrative they believe about the tech that says that, oh, we can use this now, let's say, to help us with uh, predicting recidivism in a criminal or whatever like that. We just use this. It's so much more efficient or whatever. And there's a kind of a 
a myth around it. And right. that doesn't have the nuance of what the researchers would say, which might be like, no, I literally just put together this data set from what I could find on the internet. You can't quite trust it because of these reasons, but all that nuance can get lost. And we just start applying these things uh, without thinking about that because we think that they're useful, that they're going to help us or that they're going to solve some problem. And then we end up with those consequences that none of the people who created it ever foresaw or intended because when they when they developed it, it was more of a curiosity. It was really a research thing, like an intellectual right. curiosity thing that was never intended to bear the weight of, you know, actually affecting people's lives to that degree. Um, how is that? Like, I especially see this even in the, in the, in maybe coming from the Christian perspective towards technology. Yeah. And I think what you just, go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. See what you have to say. Well, something paused and you froze so we can kind of pick it up. But what you just mentioned the data sets and this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately because of some of the researchers I'm talking to who have really limited data for the mm. research they want to do in machine learning. And so I think you, you have a data hungry science here in mm. AI. And as a researcher, you're only as good as the data that you can get a hold of. And so any data set with in light of no data sets is a good data set. And so I think what we're, what we're starting to see is we better be much more careful about the data sets we employ to train these models. Gretchen gave us a lot of food for thought about how our data is collected and used. Now we'll turn to David Brenner, who has a unique risk management perspective on the technology. Artificial intelligence is obviously a large area of both opportunity and risk. Mm-hmm. I'm a person of faith. I've spent um, a great deal of my life in the church as a leader and even as a lawyer for many churches. And so I sought to bring together both parts of my life, Mm -hmm. this secular risk management and this interest in how can people of faith contribute to human flourishing in part by promoting the opportunities that AI poses and also controlling its risk. Mm Mm-hmm. You did work for in risk management for churches. Do you view AI as a threat to the current church institutional model? What is the risk there uh, to what could happen to our congregations in the future? And how could that risk be managed? I think the biggest risk is really more around social media. I mean, there there is a risk of uh, surveillance. You see in the Uyghur population of China, which is a religious faith-based uh, culture, how China has so successfully used AI to isolate and control that population hmm. is really a laboratory for what could happen in an authoritarian regime that brands religion as a risk hmm. and something we should pay a lot of attention to and work hard to protect people of faith all over the world from. Hmm. So there's that very real immediate risk depending on the strength of the rule of law in a country. Okay. The other risk is... I think related to the diminution in the quality of our dialogue within society that manifests within church congregations. Mm. How do we talk to each other? How do we engage? Churches are really should really should be the safest place in our culture. And yet a tendency more and more to engage there through social media, at arm's length, not relationally to use the call-out culture and all that has grown out of it in the church world, that's terribly corrosive. Hmm. And where we should be wanting to go is 
I think, to limit the use of these tools within the church for communication so that we stay really connecting in a deeply personal, relational way. Because mm. that's the beauty of life and faith together. On the other hand, there are some opportunities that are arising with AI and uh, analytics in helping to understand how to reach out to other people, how to do social justice better, how to engage with society. And we shouldn't be afraid of AI in that context. We should seek to use tools that are well-designed, that take care, that take bias and other kinds of problems into account. And we should also promote AI's great opportunities in the health world because helping people heal physically is a huge part of our faith. Jesus did that in the in the Christian world as a key part of his mission, making people whole. And uh, AI has some great opportunities and potential around that too. So it seems like it, what we need is a mindful engagement and uh, to use the best, well, uh, working hard to boundary the worst. It's good to get some perspective on the upshot, the good things AI has to offer faith communities and the world. Next, we talk about AI ethics and what faith perspectives bring to that conversation. So we were talking just briefly about um, tel- like AI and medicine, predictive health, uh, those kinds of things. And I think that one other aspect of artificial intelligence is that you're trying to make a prediction because you're also trying to influence human behavior. Right. You're trying to influence what people value or believe, what they buy, what they see, what they think. And from that perspective, uh, the, the AI ethics conversation is so critical because it's such a powerful lever or such a powerful tool now to influence the masses, not just on a personal level, not just, um, you know, right. on an individual level. Right. What do you think that uh, faith has to bring to that conversation? And how did you come to become part of the AI and faith or a nonprofit and board? Yeah, I think all along I have sensed that there were bigger issues at play in our quest for what we call artificial intelligence. And this gets into the very philosophical discussion about intelligence in general. And I kind of frame it in terms of AI is a an image or an imprint of human intelligence, HI. Mm. And if for those of us who believe in the bigger picture, we are an imprint of divine intelligence. Mm. And so there's a hierarchy of, um, I don't know how to describe it, a hierarchy, mm-hmm. authority. And so- uh, Okay, a hierarchy of authority that goes from divine intelligence, human intelligence, and artificial intelligence. Right. And I always like to call it machine intelligence mm. because it's not, I mean- Artificial is such an, a loaded word, and I think in pretty well any other context, artificial isn't good. Mm-hmm. You know, artificial flavoring, artificial sweeteners, artificial, you know, mm-hmm. what do you call it? GMOs, genetically, genetically modified, modified organisms. Yeah, anything artificial. Uh, but somehow artificial intelligence is this cool thing. <laughs> but I think machine intelligence is how I like to frame it. And we're, we're using machine learning. And all of those terms are rooted in our human existence, our human nature. And so I don't, for one, don't think we're the 
top of the heap in terms of intelligence. I think we're really good. Yeah. But um, so, so I like to frame it in those terms. And I think faith has a lot to do with it because what questions we allow ourselves to ask and what things we allow ourselves to believe we can and should be able to do are, should inform the science that we do. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so like what's missing in that, in the broader AI ethics conversation, do you think that, that people of faith or even let's be more specific, the Christian perspective um, yeah. can, can bring to the table that, you know, the researchers may not be thinking about or may not be asking. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty deep question. And I think it presupposes that we would be welcome at the table in terms of that conversation. But I think we, I think increasingly we are mm -hmm. uh, people of faith in general, because some of the issues that are being raised in the ethical conversation about AI and its impact on humanity are the, the same kinds of questions that we have about humans and what we do. And if you look at, you know, Mar to quote Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message and we, his, his whole premise of the extensions of man, and by man he means mankind or humanity, that our machines, our tools, are extensions of ourselves. And as we extend our minds into machines that can do things that only humans up to this point could be able to do, mm -hmm. that does raise huge, huge questions that I think uh, religions have been tackling for millennia. And AI, ethic, AI ethicists have only been tackling for, you know, 100 years. The kinds of questions that technology companies are facing are actually the same questions that people in religion have been talking about for 4,000 years. Mm -hmm. What's the nature of human identity? Why are humans different from, say, animals or now robots? Mm -hmm. How do we understand what is truth? Is, is it objective? How do we understand the world in general and what is true in the world? Is there free will? So do we actually have a choice? Or in the new age of massive data and predictive analytics, are we able to force people to do what they want? They, they may not want to do, mm -hmm. but still leave them with the feeling that they're choosing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are the origins of human rights and liberties? For instance, privacy, which is a pretty squishy one and, and uh, not in our, not an enumerated right in our constitution at all, but one that the law has created and recognized. So where, where does the right to be private in your life come from? How does that relate to your data? Mm. Is data something that's integral to your being or is it just a description of who you are? And how do we manage that? These mm -hmm. are all questions that are now fundamental business questions. And if, if business doesn't get them right or think about them up front, then they end up having to backfill in the backside with all kinds of disruption, like we're seeing with Facebook right now, which mm -hmm. is essentially trying to answer the question of how to deal with human nature mm -hmm. and its tendency toward evil <laughs> uh, with a completely flat platform. So mm -hmm. now they've become the censor of the world, trying to decide what's appropriate, mm -hmm. what's wrong, and how do we police that? Mm. A position nobody ever thought they'd be in mm -hmm. when Mark Zuckerberg started the company. It's interesting to see how quickly ethical issues go from being theoretical to very practical. Here's how AI and Faith helps researchers, students, 
businesses, workers, and faith communities address this. Our original mission statement was to create a channel to allow people of faith who are sophisticated technologists and ethicists, theologians and philosophers to come together and speak into this national and international discussion mm-hmm. around ethical AI. How mm-hmm. do we get AI that's good for human flourishing? And that continues to be our mission, but recently our board on a retreat came to the conclusion that we need to target that mission more specifically in order to have greater leverage. And so our new mission statement is basically to provide faith-oriented resources to technology workers and students preparing to work in the field of AI so that we, we can work at the creation of artificial intelligence and best mm-hmm. leverage the knowledge and skills of this great network of experts we pull together and their and their partner organization. I'm hopeful that I'm hopeful that AI and faith can also just create safe spaces for the people who are doing this to be able to have that conversation and bring their faith as a part of it. Because mm-hmm. you did mention and I also know that many people in the workplace may feel like they have to keep their faith quiet for various reasons and sometimes it's appropriate, sometimes it may not be. Yeah. But and- those values can't really be brought to bear because of the way the culture of the tech industry generally is not favorable. To, the, to spirituality or I guess talk about Jesus or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so of course there's going to be appropriate and appropriate ways to talk about it, but it just seems like creating more of those safe spaces where that conversation can happen could unleash insights that they only they would have, only people who are working at the front lines of this would have. And hopefully connecting them, like you said, with that broader network lets them have a channel of influence where those ideas can be shared, experimented on, and maybe like, like you know, in a sense of like Daniel in the in the Babylonian Empire it's like leading to a just way forward, mm-hmm. or I guess Joseph in the Egyptian Empire helping save the nation from famine. Yeah, um, I think that's very true. And that's part of our new focus is the idea of helping people integrate their work with their life in a faith-life integration uh, that's going to be helpful personally, helping people connect with others so they see that they're not alone. We understand there are great affinity groups, each of the big tech companies. Some of the people involved with us are already directly engaged there. We'd like to study how those groups are working in a in a formal way. Part of what we're doing is converting from a loose-knit network that's com- aimed at uh, communicating to more of a think tank model that's based on a network of expertise and that's still communicating. Use that think tank to focus around how do tech workers engage, what are their needs, uh, and how can we bring expertise to bear from our network, including systematic values from sophisticated ethicists, theologians, and philosophers that we have to speak into their corporations. We also have senior management, people who are currently or formerly engaged in some of these very large tech companies as high-level executives who can help navigate this experience of these affinity groups in the big companies or and tech workers in any size company. Not to be necessarily an advocate group for a particular issue, but to know how best to navigate the corporate needs and and meet all of their objectives. So we hope that we can be helpful, and at the start we intend to be really listening and inquiring and, and then seeing how we, are, from what we learn, we can engage. As AI and Faith focuses its efforts on supporting tech workers and companies, we closed our conversation with thoughts on how to bridge the faith and tech divide. 
You know, I, I was thinking about the the way that uh, it would be so helpful if there was more, I guess, religious literacy yeah. among the broad tech population. They don't have to become Christians, not to proselytize, but just religious literacy to understand the values and, and ways and beliefs of people of faith. And also vice versa, it would be fantastic to have digital literacy in the faith communities broadly, not just the techies, but like everybody kind of getting a basic, because we can all, we're all literate in reading and writing English nowadays, right, right in America. Uh, and that a lot of that literacy movement was pushed by people of faith, actually, because they saw that literacy is essential to everybody's well-being and their development and growth and participation in society. And so there was a huge push for everyone to be able to read, right. write, right. and to speak. And I think likewise, historically, like to, to draw an analogy to today, we have that opportunity now in our faith communities and broadly in society for people to gain digital literacy um, as a society and then for people in the tech world to gain religious literacy so that they may not be persuaded by it, but they can know what those concerns are and be aware of their own biases against it and be able to build technology that is able to serve people of faith. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful idea. And I think what you just articulated is what AI and faith is landing on in some ways is to yeah. give people tools, educationally speaking, at least at the outset. I mean, there will be other mandates and charters within AI and faith, but I think we've come to beginning the output of the organization yeah. on its way to being a think tank to equipping the saints with tools to talk to techies and equipping techies with tools to talk to the saints. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and a lot of that has to do with making things understandable and communicating clearly and concisely, A, the gospel, and B, how AI works and how high tech mm -hmm. works. And that brings us to the end of this episode. A big thank you to David and Gretchen for sharing AI and Faith's work bridging the gap between tech and faith communities. You can learn more about this at AIandFaith.org. I'd also like to thank our patrons for their financial support. If you'd like to advance these conversations about the theology of technology, you can become a monthly sponsor by signing up at Patreon.com Theotech. God be with you, and thanks for listening.